all give a please a warm welcome to Bob S. from Nakona, Texas. I'd like to start out by thanking all the people who made it possible for Betty and me to be here. I want to thank all the committee that put this together. I know that these things don't just happen, that a lot of people do an awful lot of hard work to make these things go smoothly, and this one is going smoothly. How about it? Let's hear it for the committee, huh? I want to thank Jack Sullivan and his wife, Gay, who invited us here. I want to thank Bob and Juanita Wessel, who asked us to come early and put up with us a couple of days. I want to thank Larry and his wife. And I want to thank Billy and Marietta, who fed us. And I want to thank all you people whom I've known before as we trudged the road to happy destiny. I'm so glad to see you again, and the rest of you I would like to meet. <clears throat> I come here from a little town called Nocona, Texas, and I can tell by the look on your face it's not a household word. <laughs> if we don't have the beautiful city, we really live in the boonies. People say, what's it near? And I have to say, it's not near anything. <clears throat> Betty and I have to drive 100 miles to get to the airport. So this is a real a treat. I want to tell you, we had a terrible storm there just uh, the weekend before last sustained winds and tornadoes all around and you know in that town when we assessed the results of that terrible windstorm it had done over twenty thousand dollars worth of improvements <laughs> i'm so happy to see so many of you young people here and i want to especially welcome you who are newcomers to our program and know that you will have a happy time. Some of you will be your first convention, and I promise you, you'll never forget it. You know, these are happy programs, joyous programs, and free programs. They're not stodgy, and but they are fun, and they're happy and, and lighthearted. My name is Bob Smith, and I'm an enthusiastic member of Al-Anon. <laughs> I'm also a grateful Al-Anon, and I want to tell you what I'm grateful for. The Al-Anon program is teaching me a way of life I was not smart enough to figure out myself. And for that, I am really grateful. Uh, I think I got here, as most of you Al-Anons did, I love an alcoholic. My present wife, the incumbent. <laughs> I find I get a little more respect that way. <laughs> As most of you know, is a recovering alcoholic with over 14 years of sobriety. And believe me, folks, for that I am truly grateful. <laughs> I want to qualify as an Al-Anon to you people. I think that uh, there are four things I must do. I think I must work the steps. I think I must abide by the traditions. I think I must attend the meetings regularly, and I think I need to have a sponsor, and I do these things. And uh, I wanted to tell you about my sponsor. My sponsor is a woman. 
When I first came into the program a little over 14 years ago, I looked around and there were just a few men, and most of them were the age of my son, so I picked out a lady that's a little older than I as a sponsor. Now, I know that we don't recommend that, and I certainly don't recommend it, but you can tell by looking at me that this sex thing does not loom nearly as large on the horizon. <laughs> Now, don't misunderstand me. I love to see you beautiful ladies. I just can't remember why. <laughs> my, my sponsor goaded me into service, and really there's no other word. And folks, you know, one part of our triangle is service. I've been the GR and the DR, and I served three years as treasurer of the West Texas Assembly. And a few years ago, I got a call from uh, Al-Anon Central Office in New York asking me if I would submit my name to be a candidate for trustee at large for Al-Anon. And I prayed about it, and I thought, I've got the educational qualifications they're looking for. So I wrote back and said, yes, I will be happy to be a candidate for trustee at large for Al-Anon. And guess what, folks? I didn't get it. <laughs> well, of course, my first reaction was, if they didn't want me, why'd they bother me? <clears throat> Don't they know it hurt my feelings? <laughs> you know, and, but what I, the point is I'd like to make with you, my program came to my rescue as it always was when, well, when I let it. I thought, hey, whoever got that position was capable of doing a much better job than I, was infinitely better qualified, and maybe my Heavenly Father had something else he wanted me to do. And I am able to release it, and I can always release things like that with my program when I let it. You know, I was looking at your motto. Oh, I think that is just fabulous, because every one of us here has an accountability Somebody gave us this program. Somebody took the time. Somebody made the effort. And so every one of us here, and I certainly include myself, we have an accountability. We have a responsibility for that person that reaches out for help. And it's a blessing to us. You know, Dr. Albert Schweitzer said, I know not what your destiny may be, but this one thing I do know, that those of you who will find true happiness are those who have sought and found how to serve. And that's what our programs teach us, how to serve other people, and that's the key to true happiness. Although I've only been in Al-Anon a little over 14 years, I'm somewhat of an anachronism that I'm the only person still alive that was present when the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous met for the very first time Mother's Day in Akron, Ohio, 1935, at the home of Henrietta Syrling, my father's Dr. Bob, one of the co-founders of AA, and my mother's Ann. And I was a teenager at the time, and I rode out with them to meet with Bill W. for the very first time. Uh, i got to tell you about it. My father had come home the day before Mother's Day with a potted plant, <laughs> set it down. He was potted. <laughs> he went upstairs and, and passed out. Now, my mother had been a friend of Henrietta Syrling, and, and Henrietta called and said, Ann, there's a man out here that thinks he can help Bob. Bring him right on out. Well, my mother had to explain to Henrietta that Bob was in no shape to talk to anybody. 
But being good Al-Anon material, she said, I'll get him out there tomorrow. <laughs> well, he had a terrible hangover. And he said, 15 minutes of this bird is all I want. <clears throat> but you know, folks, it wasn't 15 minutes. He and Bill went off in a room by themselves, and they talked many hours. And as a result of that meeting and at my mother's invitation, Bill came and he lived at our home all that summer. And I think that is when this miraculous series of programs started. Now just think about it, folks. My mother didn't say, Bill, why don't you come over for supper next Thursday? And Bill might have said, well, I think I can. My mother said, come live with us. And Bill said, okay. <laughs> now, isn't that kind of a miraculous happening? <clears throat> I want to tell you, I'd like to describe my father to you. I think you'd have loved the guy. My father was an M.D., as you know, and uh, he was a graduate of Dartmouth, one of the Ivy League colleges back in the East, the Drinker's Ivy League College, and he fit right in there. And then uh, he had worked in industry a couple of years and prevailed upon his father, who was a uh, probate judge in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, his home, to allow him to come out to Chicago and go to medical school. And he came out and he went to uh, medical school and barely managed to graduate, just barely got his MD because his alcoholism was progressive, as it always is. But somehow he had managed to obtain a coveted internship at City Hospital there in Akron. And it was coveted because they had some advanced equipment at the time. And he moved out to Akron and married my mother after a whirlwind courtship of only 17 years. <laughs> Dr. Bob thought things over very carefully. Dr. Bob was a tall, thin Vermonter with icy blue eyes that could kind of look right through you, you know. Uh, Dr. Bob was a general practitioner for several years and then went back to Rochester, Minnesota and studied under the Mayo Brothers at Mayo Clinic and learned to be a surgeon and came back to Akron with a new profession that relied on other doctors' referrals, a big drinking problem, and they all knew it, so you can imagine what his practice was. And so as a result of that, and this was right in the middle of the last Great Depression, we didn't have any money. We were just terribly, terribly broke. Um, Dr. Bob, like many people that drink, I've noticed, had tattoos. And uh, being a surgeon, you know, they wore these short-sleeved surgical grounds. And Dr. Bob, on his left arm, had a dragon that started at his shoulder, and it went around and around. <laughs> And it came out at his wrist, and it was blue with red fire. <laughs> and I said, Dad, how in the world did you ever get that? He said, boy, that was a dandy. <laughs> but you can imagine how he felt about it after he sobered up. <laughs> now, the times were right in the middle of the last depression, and I think that that was perhaps providentially arranged because people didn't have any work. They had a lot of time for each other. See, we lived in a one industry town, Akron, Ohio, and uh, they made tires there. And when people stopped buying automobiles, they didn't need tires, and there were strong men on the street corner selling apples for five cents apiece. The rubber factories were down to one and two days a week, those that were working. There was tier after tier of repoed cars in the garages downtown. But again, people 
by not having jobs had time. And I think that was one of the things that was absolutely necessary to get the programs going. Time for each other. <clears throat> uh, you know, Bill was also a tall, thin Vermonter. And you'd have loved Bill, too. Uh, but Bill and Dr. Bob were exact opposites. Dr. Bob was steady. He went along on an even keel. He thought things over pretty carefully. Bill was the complete opposite. Bill was garrulous. Bill's mood swung. He's either high as a Georgia pine or low as a snake. <coughs> Bill was a promoter. Bill was a visionary. I think Bill Wilson could see further up the road than any human I've ever known. But these two guys fit together perfectly. I've heard this said that if uh, A had been left up to Dr. Bob Smith, it'd still be in Ohio. <laughs> And if A had been left up to Bill Wilson, he'd have sold it to a franchise. <laughs> but again, I think uh, our Heavenly Father arranged for these two guys to come together because they were such opposites. They never had an argument. But you know, folks, if any two of us are exactly alike, one of us is unnecessary. <laughs> Well, I want to tell you about the home treatment. You know, these two guys only had two things going for them that I knew of. They had an open spiritual mind, and they had the desire to be of service to another human being. These two things. Now, times were just terrible. They couldn't have raised $50 between them. But they had this idea, and I think our Heavenly Father has seen to it that although the movements just came from absolutely nothing, and many of you may feel like you're coming from nothing today. And that's one of the, the messages I hope to, to instill in you, that it doesn't make any difference if you're coming from nothing. It doesn't make any difference where you're starting. And another thing is that I think our Heavenly Father provided a series of nudging miracles that allowed these programs to progress without just totally self-destructing. Uh, Bill and Dr. Bob decided they need to find another alcoholic. And the first one I remember was a young guy by the name of Eddie R. Eddie was a young man, had a cute little blonde wife and two stair-step kids. So it was decided to move the whole bunch into our home. <laughs> and then Bill and Dr. Bob took Eddie up in the, one of the bedrooms and locked him in there where he'd be available, you know, as they got this knowledge. <laughs> Hey, folks, remember nothing's written. They're just trying to stay a page ahead of Eddie. <laughs> but Eddie was an agile guy, and uh, we had uh, downspouts, and Eddie would open up the second-story window and slide down the downspouts and escape. <laughs> and they had to postpone Eddie's recovery long enough to recapture him. <laughs> uh, what, one time, Eddie got as far as Cleveland, Ohio, 35 miles away, and called him up on the phone, collect to let them know that he was going to commit suicide. But he would give them time to drive up and witness the event. Well, they brought Eddie back down one more time, but when Eddie sobered up, he had a few mental quirks that hadn't immediately surfaced, and he began beating up on this cute little blonde lady he was married to. Then he began chasing my mother around the house with a butcher knife. <clears throat> so we held a group conscience meeting. <laughs> And it's decided the only thing to do with Eddie was 
for his wife to take him back to Ann Arbor, Michigan and recommit him in a mental institution, and this was done. And Dr. Bob and Bill were crestfallen. Here's their first attempt to work with another alcoholic. Total failure. But I want to tell you something. At my father's funeral, 15 years later, a man walked up to me and he said, Do you know me? And I said, Yeah, I know you. You're Eddie. And he said, That's right. And he said, I'm a member of the Youngstown, Ohio AA group, and I've been sober one year. Right. <laughs> you know, you, we never know the result of that 12-step meeting. We're only called on to carry the message. I think the results depends on our Heavenly Father's will and perhaps the zeal of the person uh, receiving the message. And I know this has happened to me, and I bet it's happened to you too. <clears throat> you get on a 12-step call, and it's pretty obvious the person wishes you weren't there. <laughs> pretty soon you wish you weren't there. <laughs> but anyway... If you become discouraged to think about Eddie, we don't know how long it takes. We don't know what that seed will do. We're only called on to carry that message, and thank God we don't have to be perfect to carry it. <clears throat> Times were terribly, terribly hard, and hospitals were very expensive then. A double was $16 a day, and I think they're up a little now, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, it didn't make any difference, uh, folks, they didn't have, if you didn't have the 16 bucks. So they decided that they would treat them in our home. And so uh, they would bring a prospective wet, drunk home. And Dr. Bob would take the guy upstairs in the bedroom, being the only medical man associated with this fledgling movement, and say, okay, fellow, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, of whiskey, a little shot of whiskey, but I want you to take this medicine too, and it was peraldehyde. <clears throat> now, some of you long timers know peraldehyde is a very pungent sedative, and I promise you, if you've ever smelled it, you'll never forget it. But anyway, he knocked him out for 24 to 36 hours. <clears throat> and then, when the poor guy came to, they brought him downstairs and started back on the on the food, you know, to get the nerves settled and. and you know, get them steadied down. And here's the diet. Canned tomatoes. Sauerkraut. <clears throat> yeah, Bill had an ulcer, and he thought sauerkraut cured everything. <clears throat> and Cairo syrup. <laughs> I think you'll agree the early alcoholics were a hearty group. <laughs> But I want to stop and tell you about my mother. My mother, Ann, was so important to these movements. Bill himself said, Ann Smith is the mother of AA, and I truly believe it. My mother was a graduate of Wellesley, one of the fine women colleges back in the East, and she went there on a scholarship. Her great uncle was the president of the Santa Fe Railroad. In those days, the president had his own railroad car, and he could tie onto trains wherever they went, and it was beautifully done. And very, very uh, luxurious and so forth. And he took a liking to her, and he would take her with him. So she had led a very genteel life, and she was a school teacher. She was, uh, had led a very sheltered life and was very easily shocked until AA. <laughs> 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 
But my mother was the one that cooked the food, and my mother was the one that encouraged the people to have the quiet time. And my mother's the one that made the beds. And my mother was the one that endured the snubs. And my mother was the one that was on the telephone talking to the wives and sweethearts of these uh, alcoholics. And uh, my mother was the one that supported these two guys in what they were trying to do. And she was the one that recognized that it was from the word go that was a family disease. And I like to... Uh, if I may excerpt a letter. Now, this letter was written to Bill by Henrietta Dodson, and I don't break Henrietta's anonymity. Bill Dodson was a number three guy, if you will, at AA, the attorney. And, of course, these people are now long gone. And anyway, she's writing to Bill, and I'll excerpt part of it for you, if I may. On Friday, June 28, 1935, I met Ann Smith. I met Dr. Bob on Thursday morning in the hospital. On Thursday evening when I went to the hospital to see my husband, Dr. Bob was there, and he said, the little woman would like you to come over to the house. I told him I couldn't go that night, but would go the next night. On Friday night when I went to the house on Ardmore Avenue, I met the most thoughtful, understanding person I've ever known. After talking with her for a while, I addressed her as Mrs. Smith, and she said, and to you, my dear. She wanted to remove all the barriers. And I skip a little bit. <clears throat> Anne told me we should kneel, which we all did, and tell me to surrender myself to God and ask him if he had a plan for me to reveal it to me. Anne taught me <clears throat> to have a quiet time in the morning that I might feel near to God and receive strength for the day. She taught me to surrender my husband to God and not to try and tell him how to stay sober as I had tried that and failed. <clears throat> Anne taught me to have to love everyone. She said, ask yourself what is wrong with me today if I don't love you. <clears throat> she said, the love of God is triangular. It must flow from God through me, through you, and back to God. She taught me that I should never criticize the, the words of the person leading the meeting as we do not know God's plan. Maybe what that person says will meet the need of someone in the group. In the early part of 1936, and organized a woman's group for wives of alcoholics, whereby in her loving way she tried to teach us patience, love, and unselfishness. And I skip a little bit more. When I met and talked with this intelligent, deeply spiritual woman, I was completely sold on A.A. Henrietta Dodson. So you see this beautiful lady recognized the fact that it did affect the family. And my mother wrote to Lois, and Lois came out while Bill was there, <clears throat> and we met her and we started a friendship that lasted until Lois passed away in recent years. But uh, Lois stayed as long as she could, but she had to get back to New York City. you got to remember, folks, Lois is the only one that had a job. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when uh, Lois thought it might be uh, wise to uh, formalize our Al-Anon program in 1951, she rode around to the groups all around the country uh, to see if there was any interest in this type of an organization. And to her surprise, she found out that there were 64 groups around the country that were already doing it. <clears throat> in their independent thinking, they had figured out for themselves that it was a family illness. It affected the whole family, and they were doing something about it. And I think that that's really surprising. <clears throat> the early AAs were all men, all low-bottom drunks.
like I see in this first row here. <laughs> there was one lady that came along fairly early in the program by the name of Elsie, but they caught Elsie doing a little 13-step work on Dr. Bob's examining table with an AA by the name of Mitch. <laughs> And, of course, the wives and sweethearts all went up in smoke, and so it was decided that they confined their efforts to the men for the time being. I think Elsie sets you gals' movement back two years all by herself. <laughs> but anyway, thank God you're here. Thank God you're here. <clears throat> Did you ever stop and think? Remember, this movement wasn't a huge success. It was very hard fought. Lots of battles. Lots of snubs. We were very unpopular with the neighbors. If, if, if you'd like to get a feel of that, just try starting a halfway house in your home. We even got kicked out of the Presbyterian Church on account of AA. The minister made a point to come down and ask us not to come back, that it was upsetting some of the congregation. <clears throat> so we were kicked out of that church, which kind of surprised me. I never heard of anybody getting kicked out of that church, but we did. <laughs> so you see, it wasn't an easy thing. A lot of people did a lot of hard work <clears throat> to get this thing going. What was the sources of their information? Well, Bill and Dr. Bob had belonged to an organization called the Oxford Group. <clears throat> Uh, started by a Lutheran minister in Pennsylvania by the name of Frank Buckman, and I know that some of you people live in areas that still use some of the principles of the Oxford group, the four absolutes, absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, absolute purity of thought, and absolute love. And they had a form of a fifth step, but it was open confession fifth step. It was not, uh, you know, it was not acceptable by people of the Catholic faith, and I don't know whether you realize it, but there are Catholics that drink. <laughs> Also, the Oxford group uh, catered to the upper middle class. And believe you me, the early alcoholics were not upper middle class. <laughs> and the Oxford group wanted publicity. And the alcoholics had already had all the publicity they wanted. <clears throat> so it was inevitable that to two part. But we do owe these people a tremendous debt of gratitude. <clears throat> The Bible sources they used were the 13th Corinthians, the Sermon on the Mount, and the book of James. You know, James, faith without works is dead. They used a lot of the information that was given to them. See, Bill had belonged to the Oxford group for six months in New York City, and my father and mother had belonged to it in Akron, Ohio, for two and a half years. So, uh, and I used to go to some of those meetings with my parents, and they were such zealots, they scared me pretty badly. But... <clears throat> I think I went probably to get out of the doghouse with my folks. Uh, you can't tell by looking at me now, but I was not a constant source of joy to my parents. <laughs> <clears throat> Did you ever stop and think about the nudging miracles that our Heavenly Father has managed to give to us that kept us from self-destructing in our programs. 
Let me talk to you a little bit about that, because I think they're absolute miracles. <clears throat> money. AA and Al-Anon don't have any money. We don't want any money. You know, Bill and Dr. Bob were human beings, and they decided, wouldn't it be nice to have a treatment center? And they picked out a graystone building there in Akron, Ohio, and Dr. Bob, I'm sure, could see himself in his white coat greeting the patients. Maybe Bill out on the street flagging them in. <laughs> so Bill went back to New York City and approached the Rockefeller Group. He said, we need money. We need dough. But the Rockefeller Group, in their infinite wisdom, said, no, money will ruin it. What a miracle. Can you imagine what would have happened if the Rockefeller Group had dumped a million dollars on a hundred broke drunks? <laughs> it's just horrible to think about. <laughs> they did, uh, I think, gave them a little bit of donation of 5000 bucks or so. But I want you to know that that's the only charity that the Rockefellers ever gave that the charity gave their money back to them. They paid them back. <clears throat> property. A and L don't own any property. We don't want to own any property. We're not custodians of valuable real estate. We're just here to take that hand that reaches out for help. We're responsible. And that's our primary purpose. <clears throat> Anonymity. You know, in the early days, there were some uh, people in the organizations with huge egos. Now, I know we don't have any more of those. Do we, Jack? <laughs> so they came up with the principle of anonymity. You know, you can't be Mrs. Allen or Mr. A.A. if nobody knows what your name is. And another thing that that has done, folks, and this is, I think, great. It doesn't make any difference if you've been here 40 minutes or 40 years. We're all exactly the same. And I think that that's the way it has to be. God as we understood him. You know, that was put into the 12 steps to quiet a loudmouth agnostic by the name of Jimmy B. <clears throat> Jimmy said this, God stuff will ruin it. So to quiet Jimmy down, they put God as we understood him. And you know what that's done, folks? That has allowed these movements to go into all the eastern countries, all the countries all around the world who have an entirely different concept of a higher power than perhaps you and I do. Just those words have made that acceptable to those people. And I think that that's a miracle. <clears throat> the big book of AA, written in the 30s, couldn't hardly give it away. It sold for three dollars and a half originally, and they had paid two and a half for it. But the printer had bonded it; it was in a bonded warehouse, and uh, you know they had to come with a two dollars and a half to get the book before they'd let them out with it. And then they could sell it for three and a half and get enough money to go back. And they bought them like a dozen at a time, you see. <clears throat> and this book, the first hundred and sixty-four pages, are exactly the same as they were when it was originally written, except for one word. Bill had had a spiritual experience. Boom. Most of us don't get it that way. Most of us get it gradually. So that word was changed to awakening to realize, you know, that most of us don't get that 
big experience. Some do, but most of us don't. I don't, at least. <clears throat> now, I understand that that book is one of the five bestsellers of all time. I was in uh, Seattle in 1990 when they presented the 10 millionth copy to Nell Wing. And I think they turn those out at the rate of 8,000 a day now. It's printed in many, many different languages. I think uh, 28 different languages now. I have it in Russian. If any of you have it in Russian, uh, did you notice the mistake on the chapter 5? <laughs> but you know what, folks? The first 17 and a half years of my life, I lived in a home with active alcoholism. Not a dysfunctional home. I don't like that buzzword. It was a home that didn't work very well. <laughs> but everybody was trying. <clears throat> As a result of that, I'd like to talk to some of you here. Uh, how many of you, like me, were raised in a home with active alcoholism? Would you raise your hands? Oh, gosh, there's a lot of us. I think we get here with some scars. I think some of us get here with open wounds. I think we have to be very careful how we handle that. I think uh, we must uh, learn to be victors over it and not stay a victim. And I've talked to our, our speaker tonight, uh, Charlotte's husband. <laughs> <laughs> And he has said that he wants to talk a little bit tonight about that uh, possibility of, of getting rid of that victim complex. But I would like to say to you personally, I do not intend to remain forever frozen in the role of an injured adolescent. That's me. <clears throat> you know, Dr. Bob only lived 15 years. See, he was older than Bill when it started. But in that length of time, he personally treated, without charge, medically and AA-wise, over 5,000 alcoholics. I like to think of Dr. Bob as Mr. Twelfth Step. He did it, he did a lot of it, and he did it well. <clears throat> I'd like to spend a little time with you talking about the traditions. You know, I'm, the longer I'm with the program, the more I realize how important those traditions were. They're the glue that holds us together. Yeah. The traditions were written in 1946, and Bill went around the country, stumping the country, trying to get the groups to uh, adopt the traditions, and groups were then like they are now. They said, Bill, go on back to New York and run that like you want to. We'll run this here like we want to, and they wouldn't pay any attention to it. So at the first international in 1950, they presented these traditions, he and Dr. Bob, to the first international, and they accepted them there, and thank goodness they did, because I am convinced that without those traditions, this, these movements would have just blown themselves apart. You know, the Oxford group didn't have traditions. You know what happened to them? <clears throat> Frank Buckman approached Hitler, and I'm sure the guy was sincere. He was trying to teach this basic uh, back-to-first-century uh, spirituality. Well, the media got a hold of it and said, hey, it's a Nazi sympathizing bunch. And when they did that, boom. 
The Oxford group had to change their name to Moral Rearmament. I think they exist a little bit in London and on the West Coast, and that's it. That almost destroyed them, you see. They were perceived as messing with politics. And then uh, I, uh, there was another group called the Washingtonians. 150 years ago, grew a lot faster than AA and Alnon, and didn't have the traditions, and they just self-destructed and destroyed themselves and did it almost instantly. Most overnight, they were gone. <clears throat> they got to doing all sorts of wonderful things except what their primary vision was, and that was they started out to share alcoholics with other alcoholics, just like AA. So that's why I think these traditions have been absolutely essential in keeping us... <clears throat> together I don't know where we'd be without them I, I suspect we might have self-destructed but anyway Betty and I went to the first international 1950 with my father Dr. Bob <clears throat> my mother died the year before and he was terminally ill he was dying of cancer he gave a short talk there and then Betty and I drove him back to his beloved Vermont one more time and I wouldn't take for the times that we shared driving along the highway and and uh, listening to him and sitting on the edge of the bed at night. Wonderful, wonderful sharing with a wonderful guy. And we brought him back to Akron, Ohio. And uh, I, I was uh, had a flying job out of Dallas for, at the time, and I had to leave. And I never saw my father alive again. But I, we did have that time to share. And I did see recovery in our home. And people say, well, what was it like? I'll tell you what it was like. It was fun. <clears throat> it really was. Gee whiz, what an improvement. You know, <laughs> they brought these guys in here, in there with blank eyes, and pretty soon you begin to see a little twinkle, and pretty soon you got a viable human being on your hands, and it was fun, folks. I didn't mind going to the attic. When Susie and I opened the front door and smelled paralahide, we knew she was going to the couch and I was going to the attic. But... <clears throat> But it was such an improvement, and these guys were fun. And they weren't overnight guests either. Arch T, who started uh, a Detroit State almost a year. <clears throat> so it was great. Well, Betty and I attended the second one in 1955, and she talked about that today. And then we didn't attend another one until 1980. We were out working on our case history. <clears throat> <laughs> And she told you we like to party and we like to drink and we like to dance. And I never told anybody that Dr. Bob had a son. I, uh, I wanted to play. And I didn't want to be a hypocrite. So we went merrily on our way until the alcoholism set in on our own home. And again, I saw the despair that I'd known in my family's home. The despair came into our home. And we began seeing it wasn't as much fun, this party. And it, it was beginning to show a seamy side. And there was beginning to be a little friction among our friends. And I think you know what I'm talking about. And we began to try and do something about it just in a subtle way. And, I, you know, two hunters love to hunt up in Alaska. And so they would hire one of these little aviation companies to fly them in and uh, land on a lake and come back and pick them up in a week. So sure enough, the little plane comes in a week later, and the guy says, Boy, we're glad to see you. We got six moose. And the pilot says, Six moose? You two guys and me and six moose in this little airplane? One of the hunters said, Don't worry about it. He said, A fellow came in with a plane just like yours last year. 
We had six moose, and what you do is you taxi back up the river and get an extra run at it and cross the lake. And, well, he was new with the company, so he thought, well, I guess I'll try it. So sure enough, it got in the air, and they headed back towards civilization, but they're ways out in the sticks, and the engine starts to overheat, loses power, and way out in the brush someplace, it just crashes. One of the hunters dragged his buddy out and dusted him off, and his buddy said, where in the world are we? And the other one said, you know, we're within 100 yards of where we crashed last year. <laughs> And that's the way our life was going. <laughs> Trying the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> Betty went to AA and uh, I began seeing the change in her. And there were some things that were happening to her in her life that I was interested in. And so somebody said to me, well, why don't you join Al-Anon? And I thought, why not? I don't mind joining the auxiliary. So I got in my car and I drove over 40 miles to Gainesville, Texas, and I walk in on my first Al-Anon meeting. <clears throat> I look around and I'm the only man. And I begin to get mixed emotions about Al-Anon at once. And I like to describe mixed emotions as this feeling that you get when your teenage daughter comes in at four in the morning with a Gideon Bible under her arm. <laughs> <laughs> So I walk in, I stayed, <clears throat> and these gals listened to me, and oh, folks, I was noble. Oh, I was absolutely wonderful. I laid a trip on those poor ladies, you know, the rock that had been holding the family together. <laughs> Bloody but unbowed. And uh, I left with the idea that I had really given a wonderful account of myself and what a noble human being I really was. And, you know, I carried that around, that idea around with me for several years until I got to talk to Ann, one of the ladies that was there at that first one, and she said, oh, I remember that first meeting you showed up. said, uh, after you left, we held a meeting. <laughs> and we decided there's a sickie and he ain't going to make it. <laughs> but, you see, my perception of reality was here theirs was here and it was entirely different but it was just as real to me then as theirs was to them it's perception of reality and it's only been in very recent months that I found out they also at that meeting said none of us are going to sponsor him <laughs> you know I just found out about that the other day so you know I think God lets us know these things as we can handle them <laughs> I guess when I got to Al-Anon, I had the idea I still wanted to live bad and feel good. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever thought about that, but that's what my goal was, and it just wasn't working. You know, these are rigid programs. They're not loose programs. They're, really, they're very, very rigid programs. They're happy programs, but they're rigid. I don't think they're liberal in any sense of the word. And I think it's all spelled out for us how we should do it. <clears throat> I, 
have been taught that I got to peel away the past, and the past dies hard. Past dies hard with me, but I must do. I must peel that away. <clears throat> it has to be death of the person I used to be, and that death comes slowly, because I know this: the person I was will get sick again. I know how to do that. I did it for years. So I have to constantly maintain change to keep me from slipping back and being the person I was. I found out through the Al-Anon program, and after I got here, I was capable of every lousy trick after I got here as it was before. I found out that I can lose all of the things that I have overcome if I don't keep working at it, and that program has taught me that. <clears throat> I have been had to be taught how to quit reacting in a destructive way. I could do that, and I did it for years. Every the reactions I had were actually destructive, and these great Al-Anon people had to show me not to react in that kind of a way. I found out that, uh, contrary to what I first believed, that God didn't put me in this mess. I did. <clears throat> I found out, uh, let me talk to you a little bit about this. I think there's a turning point in our programs, as the big book of AA says. And I think for a lot of us, a turning point comes after maybe a year in the program. We've been kind of cradled in the arms of the group and cradled in the arms of the program. But then we actually reach a turning point. You know, am I going to do this program or am I not? Am I going to turn my will and my life completely over the care of God, or am I not? Now, to me, that is the turning point. <clears throat> How many times have you heard this, and I cried out with this cry just like so many others? Three words that make the difference. God help me. I've heard that from speakers and members from all my travels, those three words seem to be the key of changing. And, I, you know, that's the thing that I had to work for. God helped me, and then things start to point me down the road to change. <clears throat> I had to learn that my relationship with my wife is not 50-50. Sometimes it's 90-10. Sometimes it's 10-90. And what's the difference? It'll balance out. <clears throat> I had to learn that healing love does not demand its own way. I had to learn to accept love from you people in order to have it. You know, you can't give away something you haven't got. Now, my parents offered me all the love any child would ever want, but I would only accept so much. Boom, barriers down. So I'm learning from all of you people that when I let those barriers down and accept the love, then I have it and I'm better able to pass it on to you people. Now, sometimes Betty gets on a dry drunk. <laughs> and sometimes Bob gets on a dry dry. <laughs> and if it happens at the same time, there's some pretty quiet times around our house. But our programs bring us back. That's the thing about it. We realize what's happening to us, and our programs have the strength to bring us back to where we're supposed to be and, and we get over it. But those things do happen. <clears throat> I, 
I, I'm going to have to uh, stop soon. Charlotte's husband told me to cut it short that he wants to take a boat ride. <laughs> I want to tell you why I stay, why I keep coming back. I stay because you're teaching me to be more comfortable with myself. I stay because I have less emotional conflict. <clears throat> I stay because you're teaching me I'm learning more about myself. I stay because I have less of that squirrel cage thinking I used to have just round and round and round and round with no solutions. And now you people are showing me how to stop that process and get into solutions. <clears throat> I stay because <clears throat> when I can come before you and let you see me, the barriers down, warts and all, and you do the same for me, we can have an instant intimate relationship. And I know of no other organizations in the world that can accomplish that. And I think that that's an absolute miracle. As you can see, perhaps, my personal miracles have been unfolding over the years. I know most of us here have our personal miracles unfolding. And some of you who perhaps are new, you know, you're lonely. You're different. You're down to an absolute low, well, remember? AA started with absolutely nothing. Your life is a wreck, and you're discouraged, and you're fearful, and you're doubting. And I would like to close and say to you, you, don't, you haven't got your miracle yet. You've got your miracle coming. So please, don't quit before your miracle. Thank you very much. <laughs>